Section 9 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 1, Chapter 9. Sunday morning Saxon was beforehand in getting ready, and on her return to the kitchen from her second journey to peep through the front windows, Sarah began her customary attack. It's a shame and a disgrace the way some people can afford silk stockings, she began. Look at me, a toiling and a stewing, day and night, and I never get silk stockings, nor shoes, three pairs of them all at one time. But there's a just God in heaven, and there'll be some mighty big surprises for some when the end comes and folks get passed out what's coming to them. Tom, smoking his pipe, and cuddling his youngest born on his knees, dropped an eyelid surreptitiously on his cheek in token that Sarah was in a tantrum. Saxon devoted herself to tying a ribbon in the hair of one of the little girls. Sarah lumbered heavily about the kitchen, washing and putting away the breakfast dishes. She straightened her back from the sink with a groan and glared at Saxon with fresh hostility. You ain't saying anything, huh? And why don't you? Because I guess you still got some natural shame in you a running with a prize fighter. Oh, I've heard about you going ons with Bill Roberts. A nice specimen he is. But just you wait till Charlie Long gets his hands on him, that's all. Oh, I don't know, Tom intervened. Bill Roberts is a pretty good boy from what I hear. Saxon smiled with superior knowledge, and Sarah catching her, was infuriated. Why don't you marry Charlie Long? He's crazy for you, and he ain't a drinking man. I guess he gets outside his share of beer, Saxon retorted. That's right, her brother supplemented, and I know for a fact that he keeps a keg in the house all the time as well. Maybe you've been guzzling from it, Sarah snapped. Maybe I have, Tom said, wiping his mouth reminiscently with the back of his hand. Well, he can afford to keep a keg at his house if he wants to, she returned to the attack, which now was directed at her husband as well. He pays his bills, and he certainly makes good money, better than most men anyway. And he hasn't a wife and children to watch out for, Tom said. Nor everlasting dues to unions. That don't do him no good. Oh, yes, he has, Tom urged genially. Blame little work in that shop, or any other shop in Oakland, if he didn't keep in good standing with the blacksmiths. You don't understand labor conditions, Sarah. The unions have got to stick, if the men aren't to starve to death. Oh, of course not, Sarah sniffed. I don't understand anything. I ain't got a mind. I'm a fool. And you all tell me so right before the children. She turned savagely on her eldest who started and shrank away. Willie, your mother is a fool. Do you get that? Your father says she's a fool. Says it right before her face and yours. She's just a plain fool. Next he'll be saying she's crazy and putting her away in the asylum. And how would you like that, Willie? How would you like to see your mother in a straitjacket and a padded cell, shut out from the light of the sun and beaten like a nigger before the war? Willie, beaten and clubbed like a regular black nigger. That's the kind of father you've got, Willie, 
Think of it, Willie, in a padded cell, the mother that bore you, with the lunatic screeching and a screaming all around, and the quick lime eaten into the dead bodies of them that's beaten to death by the cruel wardens. She continued tirelessly, painting with pessimistic strokes the growing black future her husband was meditating for her, while the boy, fearful of some vague, incomprehensible catastrophe, began to weep silently, with a pendulous trembling under lip. Saxon, for the moment, lost control of herself. Oh, for heaven's sakes, can't we be together five minutes without quarreling, she blazed. Sarah broke off from asylum conjurations and turned upon her sister-in-law. Who's quarreling? Can't I open my head without being jumped on by the two of you? Saxon shrugged her shoulders despairingly, and Sarah swung about on her husband. Seeing you love your sister so much better than your wife, why did you want to marry me? That's born your children for you, and slaved for you, and toiled for you, and worked her fingernails off for you, with no thanks, and insulting me before the children, and saying I'm crazy to their faces. And what have you ever did for me? That's what I want to know. Me, that's cooked for you, and washed your stinking clothes, and fixed your socks, and sat up nights with your brats when they was ailing. Look at that. She thrust out a shapeless, swollen foot, encased in a monstrous, untended shoe, the dry, raw leather of which showed white on the edges of bulging cracks. Look at that. That's what I say. Look at that. Her voice was persistently rising, and at the same time growing throaty. The only shoes I got. Me, your wife. Ain't you ashamed? Where are my three pairs? Look at that stocking. Speech failed her, and she sat down suddenly on a chair at the table, glaring unutterable benevolence and misery. She arose with the abrupt stiffness of an automaton, poured herself a cup of cold coffee, and in the same jerky way sat down again. As if too hot for her lips, she filled her saucer with a greasy-looking, nondescript fluid, and continued to set glare, her breast rising and falling with staccato mechanical movement. Now, Sarah, be calm, be calm, Tom pleaded anxiously. In response, slowly, with utmost deliberation, as if the destiny of empires rested on the certitude of her act, she turned the saucer of coffee upside down on the table. She lifted her right hand, slowly, hugely, and in the same slow, huge way, landed the open palm with a sounding slap on Tom's astounded cheek. Immediately thereafter, she raised her voice in the shrill, hoarse, monotonous madness of hysteria, and sat down on the floor and rocked back and forth in the throes of an abysmal grief. Willie's silent weeping turned the noise, and the two little girls, with the fresh ribbons in their hair, joined him. Tom's face was drawn and white, though the smitten cheek still blazed, and Saxon wanted to put her arms comfortingly around him, yet dared not. He bent over his wife. Sarah, you ain't feeling well. Let me put you to bed, and I'll finish tidying up. Don't touch me, don't touch me, she screamed, jerking violently away from him. Take the children out in the yard, Tom, for a walk, anything. 
Get them away, Saxon said. She was sick and white and trembling. Go, Tom, please, please. There's your hat. I'll take care of her. I know just how. Left to herself, Saxon worked with frantic haste, assuming the calm she did not possess, but which she must impart to the screaming bedlamite upon the floor. The light frame house leaked the noise hideously, and Saxon knew that the houses on either side were hearing, and that the street itself and the houses across the street. Her fear was that Billy should arrive in the midst of it. Further, she was incensed, violated. Every fiber rebelled, almost in a nausea, yet she maintained cool control and stroked Sarah's forehead and hair with slow, soothing movements. Soon, with one arm around her, she managed to win the first diminution in the strident, atrocious, unceasing scream. A few minutes later, sobbing heavily, the elder woman lay in bed, across her forehead and eyes a wet pack of towels, for easement of the headache she and Saxon tacitly accepted as substitute for the brainstorm. When a clatter of hoofs came down the street and stopped, Saxon was able to slip to the front door and wave her hand to Billy. In the kitchen, she found Tom waiting in sad anxiousness. "'It's all right,' she said. "'Billy Roberts has come, and I've got to go. "'You go in and sit beside her for a while, "'and maybe she'll go to sleep. "'But don't rush her. "'Let her have her own way. "'If she'll let you, take her hand.' "'Why do it? "'Try it, anyway. "'But first of all, as an opener, and just as a matter of course, start wetting the towel over her eyes. He was a kindly, easy-going man, but after the way of a large percentage of the Western stock, he was undemonstrative. He nodded, turned toward the door to obey, and paused irresolutely. The look he gave back to Saxon was almost dog-like in gratitude and all brotherly in love. She felt it, and in spirit, leaped toward it. "'It's all right. Everything's all right,' she cried hastily. Tom shook his head. "'No, it ain't. It's a shame, a blame shame, that's what it is.' He shrugged his shoulders. "'Oh, I don't care for myself, but it's for you. You've got your life before you yet, little kid sister. You'll get old, and all that means, fast enough, but it's a bad start for a day off. The thing for you to do is to forget all this and skin out with your fella and have a good time. In the open door, his hand on the knob, to close it after him, he halted a second time. A spasm contracted his brow. Hell, think of it, Sarah and I used to go buggy riding at one time, and I guess she had her three pairs of shoes, too. Can you beat it? In her bedroom, Saxon completed her dressing. For an instant, stepping upon a chair, so as to glimpse critically in the small wall mirror the hang of her ready-made linen skirt. This and the jacket she had altered to fit, and she had double-stitched the seams to achieve the coveted tailored effect. Still on the chair, all in the movement of quick, clear seeing, she drew the skirt tightly back and raised it. The sight was good to her, nor did she underappraise the lines of the slender ankle above the low tan tie, nor did she underappraise 
the delicate yet mature swell of calf outlined in the fresh brown of a new cotton stocking. Down from the chair she pinned on a firm sailor hat of white straw with a brown ribbon around the crown that matched her ribbon belt. She rubbed her cheeks quickly and fiercely to bring back the color Sarah had driven out of them, and delayed a moment longer to put on her tan lisle thread gloves. Once, in the fashion page of a Sunday supplement, she had read that no lady ever puts on her gloves after she left the door. With a resolute self-grip, she crossed the parlor and passed the door to Sarah's bedroom, through the thin wood of which came elephantine moanings and low slubberings. She steeled herself to keep the color in her cheeks and the brightness in her eyes. And so well did she succeed that Billy never dreamed that the radiant, live young thing, tripping lightly down the steps to him, had just come from about with soul-sickening hysteria and madness. To her in the bright sun, Billy's blondness was startling. His cheeks smooth as a girl's were touched with color. The blue eyes seemed more cloudily blue than usual, and the crisp sandy hair hinted more than ever of the pale straw gold that was not there. Never had she seen him quite so royally young. As he smiled to greet her with a slow white flash of teeth from between red lips, she caught again the promise of easement and rest. Fresh from the shattering chaos of her sister-in-law's mind, Billy's tremendous calm was especially satisfying, and Saxon mentally laughed to scorn the terrible temper he had charged to himself. She had been buggy-riding before, but always behind one horse, jaded and livery, in a top buggy, heavy and dingy, such as livery stables rent because of sturdy unbreakableness. But here stood two horses, head-tossing and restless, shouting, in every highlight glint of their satin, golden sorrel coats that they had never been rented out in all their glorious young lives. Between them was a pole, inconceivably slender, and on them were harnesses preposterously string-like and fragile. And Billy belonged here, by elemental right, a part of them and of it, a master part and a component, along with the spidery, delicate, narrow-boxed, wide-and-yellowed-wheeled, rubber-tired rig. Efficient and capable, as different as he was different from the other man who had taken her out behind stolid, lumbering horses. He held the reins in one hand, yet, with low, steady voice, confident and assuring, held the nervous young animals more by will and the spirit of him. It was no time for lingering. With a quick glance and foreknowledge of a woman, Saxon saw not merely the curious children clustering about, but the peering of adult faces from open doors and windows, and past window shades lifted up or held aside. With his free hand, Billy drew back the linen robe and helped her to a place beside him. The high-backed, luxuriously upholstered seat of brown leather gave her a sense of great comfort, yet even greater, it seemed to her, was the nearness and comfort of the man himself and of his body. "'How do you like him?' he asked, 
changing the reins to both hands and chirruping the horses, which went out with a jerk in an immediacy of action that was new to her. They're the bosses, you know. Couldn't rent animals like them. He lets me take them out for exercise sometimes. If they ain't exercised regular, they're a handful. Look at King there, prancin'. Some style, huh? Some style. The other ones, the real goods, though. Prince is his name. Got to have some bit on him to hold him. Ah, would you? Did you see him, Saxon? Some horse, some horse. From behind came the admiring cheer of the neighborhood children, and Saxon, with a sigh of content, knew that the happy day had at last begun. End of section 9